Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a story about one of the bleakest periods in recent human history. A moment that shut down the world and the importance of understanding how it happened and how it could happen again in the future. How the pandemic began is a question that has torn apart the scientific community. But for some people in that world, there was a moment when it might have been averted. Let me take you back to 2011. At the time, Relations between the US and China were enjoying a rare moment of warmth. In fact, the year began, promisingly, like this. It is my pleasure now to introduce uh, my friend and our Vice President, uh, Vice President Biden. In a grand hall in the State Department, over a state luncheon of Maine lobster and apple pie, the then-Vice President, Joe Biden, warmly welcomed the Chinese president to Washington. May the Chinese and American people live in friendship from generation to generation, and may they always safeguard world peace together to many more generations of friendship and peace. By the summer, Vice President Biden is embarking on a historic trip to China to strengthen relations. But by the end of the year, in December 2011, for those who were looking, alarm bells were starting to ring. The world has changed a lot since the Biological Weapons Convention was signed back in 1972. In Geneva, at a conference for the Biological Weapons Convention, the US State Department issued a public warning. The technology and the knowledge in the life sciences is advancing so rapidly that there are greater opportunities for misuse. If we experience an outbreak of a dangerous, virulent disease, we will not know at the first moment whether it was the result of a terrorist attack, of an accident, or a natural transmission. And they weren't the only ones who were sounding the alarm in 2011 the Chinese government submitted a paper that caught Washington's attention. It was classified at the time. We now know that it warned, biotechnology now poses a huge threat to mankind, as it could be used in the future to create viruses and pathogens 
that are even more toxic and infectious than anything found in nature. Twelve years later, questions still swirl about how the COVID pandemic really started. And a newly declassified US intelligence report has got everyone talking. Here in Washington, at least publicly, America's spy agencies are divided. Divided about whether it started in a lab or in nature. If you look at the last 50 outbreaks that have happened, they all come from nature. This revelation should seal the conclusion that this came from a lab. There really shouldn't be much question after this. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the first in our two-part special on the origins of COVID. Part one, mutant viruses and risky experiments. I'm Jonathan Calvert. I'm the Insight Editor of the Sunday Times. I'm George Arbuthnot, and I'm the Deputy Editor of the Insight team. And Jonathan and George, we've spoken to you about this story on the podcast a few times now in the past three years. In fact, you were both amongst the first people in the British press to talk about the origin of covid Just give us a sense of who you've spoken to now and what new evidence you've seen that has contributed to the latest version of the investigation. Yeah, so we've reviewed hundreds of documents, including uh, previously confidential reports, internal memos, scientific papers and email correspondence that have been attained either through sources or by freedom of information campaigners since we did our last major investigation into this topic in uh, July 2020. And a huge amount has come out since. So um, we really felt like we could take the topic on significantly from our previous work. We also extensively interviewed the US State Department investigators who conducted the first significant US inquiry into the origins of the COVID-19 outbreak. So back in March, President Biden promised that the US intelligence services would declassify and release as much information as they could on any links between the Wuhan lab and the origins of COVID. Now, it didn't quite happen to plan. There was a bit of a delay. But finally, this weekend, we saw those documents It's what everyone was waiting for, but is it fair to say it's probably not the last word on this? What did you make of those documents? Well, it was was a major damp squib. Um, It was only four pages of meaningful content. And I think people were hoping for the underlying documents or evidence the intelligence communities had that would give them a sense of how they'd gather this information and how much weight to put on it. But it didn't provide any of that. It was also kind of continued to be very fence-sitting about the nature of the origins. Um, And indeed, it had had a line in it, which was bizarre, which said, this report does not address the merits of the two most likely pandemic origins hypotheses, which are the lab leak or the natural origins. And that seemed like an extraordinary... kind um, of what everyone was hoping to finally hear. It seemed to be the whole point of what what they were doing. But what our reporting did was speak to the investigators directly. 
And they gave us a much fuller understanding of what the US government has really found out about that crucial question. So, I mean, there's clearly a lot of evidence there, and we'll trawl through some of it with you in a moment. But before we do, just stepping back a bit, your work looking at COVID and how it was handled in this country had a huge impact. In fact, at the COVID inquiry at the moment, many of the key questions being asked come directly from your reporting. So I imagine some listeners might be quite surprised to see you looking at the origins of COVID and taking what could be seen by some to be quite a radical position on it. So just give us a sense, when the virus actually broke out, what did you think back then about its origins and how has your thinking changed in the meantime? Well, I remember when we were first asked to take a look at the origins of the virus by our then editor, Emma Tucker. It must have been around April, May 2020, so very early on. I think at that stage, we all believed that it was likely to have been a natural origin, perhaps from the wildlife market. Many of the top scientists were saying that, and the only people who were really pushing the lab theory were mostly people like Donald Trump, who wasn't known for his the accuracy of his statements. No. <laughs> but when we started looking at it, we, we felt that the actual evidence for a natural origin was surprisingly weak. And there had been extensive testing of samples, um, had failed to show any link between any of the animals in the market and the virus. The Chinese scientists had tested thousands of animals in Wuhan and the surrounding areas, but not one had come up positive for the virus. And many of the early human cases had no connection to the market at all, which suggested it was just a crowded environment that had facilitated the spread of the virus, but had not been the point of introduction into Wuhan. When we first looked at it, it kind of just seemed remarkable to us that the ground zero for the pandemic was none other than Wuhan, the centre for the storage of exactly the type of coronaviruses that caused the outbreak, the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Yeah. The city is a thousand miles from the places where the bat caves are that could be the breeding ground for COVID-19. And so it seemed to us that the weight of the circumstantial evidence strongly pointed to the lab. You're right. You know, it is really striking at the start of the pandemic that it begins in Wuhan, the same place where they're looking into coronaviruses. You can see why it would be a natural question to ask. You know, the last time we spoke to you, you thought exactly that, that this was a very valid question to be asking and it was one that should be taken seriously and investigations should be done. Where do you stand now? How certain are you now that you think the virus came from the, a lab in Wuhan? Well, I think we now feel that it's been in incrementally as the evidence has emerged, we felt that the weight of the evidence points more strongly towards the lab and is now pretty much overwhelming. Yeah. And now when you look at the types of experiment that they were doing on the coronaviruses, the evidence just becomes more and more compelling. I mean, specifically, as has been described by some of the virologists we've spoken to, you can now see that exactly the steps that were needed to be taken to create COVID-19 in a lab were being carried out at the Wuhan Institute of Virology in the years and months leading up to the pandemic. And therefore, the sheer 
chances that it didn't come from that lab mm. and the sheer coincidence you know there was really no other lab in the world doing that kind of work so the sheer coincidence that the virus came out of that particular city and indeed we found a study that Wuhan University had done which looked at where the earliest hotspots were for people requiring treatment for the virus and the hotspot in the first few weeks of the outbreak was right next to the laboratory not next to the market. And so which is what we've been told. Yeah, and so for, was the origin. And so for the one place in the entire world for that to be the hotspot is in, in our view inconceivable that that is a coincidence. And that that's remarkable because over the past 3 years, you know, for a lot of people, the idea that this whole virus began with a lab leak has sort of become a conspiracy theory. You know, as you said, it was the sort of thing that Donald Trump would say. He would call it the China virus. So, you know, people weren't taking it as a credible version. In order to understand how you've got here, I mean, it would be really useful if you could take us through your research and tell us what exactly was happening in that laboratory in the run-up to the pandemic. I mean, firstly, I know that there are three key people in the research that was being carried out there. Give us a sense of who are the main characters at the heart of this mystery. Well, Dr. Shi Zheng Li is the most famous scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. This is the woman known as Batwoman. This is the woman known as Batwoman. She kind of became heavily involved in hunting for viruses following the SARS epidemic in 2003. The galloping rise of SARS, severe acute respiratory syndrome. Why had there been no warnings, no alerts? The disease had been festering for months in southern China. An enormous cover-up. They were literally taking SARS patients, loading them in buses, and driving them to hotels immediately before the investigators from the World Health Organization would show up. The SARS epidemic was a flash in a pan relative to COVID-19, but it went through 29 countries and killed around 800 people. In April, China apologized to the world for not being more open about SARS. Several Chinese officials, including the Minister of Health, lost their jobs. And it was a real wake-up call to the scientists. It will come back if you open up all the wildlife markets in China again. And you can see that things always repeat itself. And so she was called in to lead a team hunting for the virus, and that would become her life's work. And most of that involved going out to the bat caves in southern China and, and trying to find coronaviruses, hence her nickname, the Batwoman. The woman who spends all her time in the bat caves. Mm -hmm. And who were the other characters involved with this research? So there's a British scientist called Peter Daszak at the EcoHealth Alliance who became a close friend and collaborator with Batwoman or Xi Zhengli. After the SARS crisis, the EcoHealth Alliance began to focus on how viruses might pass from animals to humans and cause a pandemic. Mm. That was attracting quite a lot of money from the US government. And in 2009, Dashak's organisation received $18 million from the US government in a programme called PREDICT. And by this time, he teamed up with Xi. Xi's role was to gather the viruses and then experiment and test on them in the lab. And Dashak was kind of gathering the grant money in America. 
So when he got this $18 million windfall, he sent a million dollars of that to the Wuhan Institute to fund Xi's team to help them collect more and more coronaviruses and do more and more experiments. And the third significant name in this research was a man called Ralph Barrack. He's a veteran virologist from the University of North Carolina in America. Our, our next speaker is Ralph Barrack from uh, University of North Carolina. The central question is, are there other SARS-like strains that have pre-pandemic potential? And if so, uh, will vaccines and drugs work? We're in dangerous times, and gain-of-function represents one of those uh, approaches that is a crucial tool for public health uh, preparedness and response. He was a bit of a genius and a great pioneer, invented all sorts of things, but he was carrying out cutting-edge experiments in the U.S. using a technique to fuse together different pathogens by mixing their genes. And to test the effect of these pathogens, he created humanized mice by injecting them with genes that allowed them to develop. Humanized mice? What does that mean? So it meant that they had kind of a respiratory system which was like humans, so that you could test an influenza-type virus like coronavirus on them and test the effect on their lungs. Because obviously the types of virus they were dealing with were so dangerous, you would never test them on, on humans. Barrick's ultimate aim was to create a universal vaccine against a SARS-type illness. But I, I mean, to this day, he hasn't actually achieved that. Nobody has. And in 2013, she contacted Barrick for help because she wanted to experiment on a virus that was very similar to SARS, which she'd found in a cave. Barrick obliged and he was sent the genetic makeup of this virus and he fused together this with a copy of SARS in his lab to create a mutant virus, which was the first of these kind of experiments that they were doing, mixing different elements of different viruses together to see what would happen. I mean, the purpose of this was to see if in the wild, in say a bat cave, there were different viruses and maybe a bat caught two of them how these things would mutate and change into some whole new virus. So this is basically doing experiments to try and predict what could possibly happen in the wild yes. and try and be prepared, I suppose. Yeah, because they were trying to find out whether these things might mix together and, and cause a pandemic. But this the 2013 experiment he, he did, he found that it was kind of it was a potential mass killer. It caused severe lung damage in the humanized mice. And this, was, this is the merged virus that they've come up with. Yes. And when the results came out, it caused outrage in the scientific community because not only was it a bit of a killer, it evaded all vaccines. Oh, wow. And, and at the time, Simon Wayne Hobson, a British virologist who is based at the Pasteur Institute in Paris, said of it, if this virus escaped, nobody could predict the trajectory. And that was the point. Nobody knew what would happen to it. That's terrifying. Um, I mean, in fact, Barrick was very aware of this gain-of-function work might be dangerous. And ju just, just explain the term gain-of-function. Well, gain-of-function is a whole area of experimentation, and it enhances the virus's potency. And it had been controversial for a long time. So, for example, in 2012... Lynn Klotz, a senior fellow at the Center of Arms Control and Non-Proliferation in Washington, called for research on these live coronaviruses to be stopped. This is 2012. She said, 
About 30 labs now are working with live SARS virus worldwide. The probability of escape from at least one laboratory is high. Would one in 10 escapes lead to a major outbreak or pandemic? One in 100? One in 1,000? No one knows. But for any of these probabilities, the likelihood weighted number of victims and deaths would be intolerably high. And the point about it is, is that they were doing a type of experiment where they were fusing together viruses and they did not know what was going to happen. If it gained function, they were creating something in their lab which was, in effect, a monster. And you said that in 2013, they they did just that. They created a virus that could be a real killer. And I know that some of this evidence was presented at Chatham House, which is a think tank. Talk us through that meeting. What happened? Yes, so we've spoken to Professor Richard Ebright, who's a microbiologist at the Rutgers University in New Jersey. He had grave concerns about gain-of-function experiments, and when he saw what Barrick and Shee's joint study had created, he was horrified. So he went to the UK because he saw that Barrick was giving a talk about his research at Chatham House in London for an audience of UK government officials and scientists. Barrett did his presentation. Ebright then challenged him and said that what you're doing is creating a a grave risk of of a pandemic. And the upsides to these studies are massively outweighed by the potential downsides. And then ensued, from what a source tells us, a big row between the two scientists, which apparently left the British audience shocked. <laughs> they were an audience yeah. at Chatham House, which, yeah. which, is, which is a very restrained think tank. <laughs> That's right. You know, we're, the British sensibilities, we're not used to these kind of outspoken American scientists, but apparently they didn't hold back. You know, to be fair, Barrick himself had recognised the risks of gain-of-function work. In, in 2006, he'd actually warned that it could be used to create a bioweapon that could be used in a war. He wrote, ominously, tools exist for simultaneously modifying the genomes for increased virulence and transmissibility. These bioweapons could be targeted to humans, causing a devastating impact on human civilization. Wow. I mean, the risks do sound extraordinary. In fact, actually, in the paper that Barak wrote with Xi about the experiment, the two of them do acknowledge that this does raise questions about the safety of gain of function and whether such work should be desirable in the future. Coming up, despite acknowledging the risks, the Wuhan Institute's experiments continued. We'll have more on them in just a moment. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So in 2015 at Chatham House, you've got this stand-up row between scientists. And this had already become a really live issue in the scientific community because in 2014, the Americans had actually banned these gain-of-function experiments. And yet, in China, they were carrying on, and they were carrying on with American money. That was, again, to collect more coronaviruses from the back caves in China and then bring them back to the Wuhan Institute of Virology to experiment on. And it would all be at the US taxpayers' expense. This was a five-year grant from 2014 all the way through to 2019. There's huge controversy about this because the US National Institute for Health was the government body that was funding this under a man called Anthony Fauci, who came to prominence in the US after the pandemic. Have a lot of cases, but, but people need to understand that things will get worse before they get better. Now, he had been pro-gain-of-function work, so he, he opposed Barack Obama's moratorium. And people in America, particularly post-pandemic, feel that his department was too lax in assessing what was safe. That it is much more likely that it is a natural occurrence from an animal to a human. However, since it hasn't been definitively proven, we've got to keep a completely open mind each uh, year, Dashak would have to report back to the US funders. And these progress reports were not made available to the scientific community at the time. And so now they've become public. There's been, I suppose, a kind of latent outrage that this was allowed to go on at the time and was being funded by the US government and there wasn't openness about it beforehand. The Wuhan Institute began stepping up its own lab work using the techniques it learned from Barrick from around about 2015 onwards. That was the year they created two new mutant viruses by fusing together viruses with the SARS-like pathogens and experimenting with MERS. MERS had killed 35% of people infected during a 2012 outbreak in Saudi Arabia. And then so to mix it with bat viruses was an extraordinary kind of risk. These experiments were mentioned in Peter Daszak's progress report. When he reported back on this, it triggered alarm bells in the US government because it appeared to involve the type of gain-of-a-function experiments that were still barred. Daszak argued that the MERS experiment was not gain-of-function because it was unlikely to make the virus more pathogenic. He didn't know either way, but he felt it was more likely to make it less virulent. And so a compromise was reached whereby the scientists would, would stop the work and report to the US officials if they created a new mutant virus that grew 10 times faster than the natural virus it was cr created from. Wow, I mean, that, that feels a little bit late to be telling people that, <laughs> yeah. that maybe things aren't going so well. well um, that's what some people would argue. And, 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 and so in 2016, Dashak announced to a New York conference we, that... Well, I didn't do this work, but my colleagues in China did the work. You create pseudoparticles, you, look, you insert the spike proteins from those viruses, see if they bind to human cells. And each step of this 
you move closer and closer to this virus could really become pathogenic in people. So they were acknowledging that the work that they were doing was was getting closer and closer to to viruses that, that might cause a lot of problems if they ever leaked out into human beings. And by 2017, cheese scientists had created a total of eight mutant viruses. And on all of this work, which had been going on 2015 through to 2017 and then on to 2018, mm. built up to one particular experiment. And it's, it's an experiment that the microbiologist, Professor Richard Ebright, told us was probably the most dangerous coronavirus experiment ever undertaken. The scientists selected three of their lab-grown mutant viruses and with these new mutant viruses, they injected them into the noses of mice. And what they found was that one of the new mutants killed 75% of the mice within about two weeks and was three times as uh, lethal as the original virus. So that's uh, a gain of function that has worked. It's made it much worse than the original virus they found in the wild. Yeah, it was so much worse. I mean, in the early days of the infection, the mice's human-like lungs were found to contain a viral load of up to 10,000 times greater than the original virus. And the thing about it is, in all probability, that would never have emerged in nature. They brought into the world this thing which didn't exist before, and it was quite deadly and also quite infectious. So we know that these experiments in the background have been going on in Wuhan in the years running up to the pandemic. How much did the Americans know about what was being investigated there? So when the Wuhan Institute and DASHAC reported the results of this experiment back to its US funders in the, for the, on the first occasion, they talked about the viral load, but they did not mention that any of the mice had died. The experiment had been done in early, early 2018. Then at the end of 2018, the five-year funding program was, was coming up for renewal. DASHAC was submitting a, a new application for another five years of funding, another multi, asking for more multi-million dollar grants again. And when he described the experiment in that funding proposal, he again omitted the, the deaths of the mice and just said they had suffered mild symptoms, which we found hard to understand given that we couldn't think of a symptom that was... Um, Worse than death. ...stronger than, de than death. Now, we, we, we know the mice died because in 2021, Dashak was finally pressured into releasing the full results of the experiment after the pandemic. So we have raised serious questions with Dashak about why he told the, his US funders that, that the symptoms had been mild. His explanation is that the experiment was preliminary, but we didn't understand, we ourselves didn't, didn't understand that explanation because when he reported the results to his US funders and asked for more money, he made a lot of the results of that experiment and, and did not claim that it was preliminary and, and actually seemed to suggest the results were very significant. Wow. At what point do the Americans realise that, that they haven't been completely honest in the reports that they've been seeing? 
That happens post-pandemic. So when we wrote our first article on the subject, the National Institute for Health in America wrote a very strong letter to Dashak at the EcoHealth Alliance asking for an explanation about why they hadn't been given more information about the Wuhan Institute's research. And ever since then, EcoHealth and Dashak have been subjected to a kind of barrage of questions and expressions of concern by US politicians and US government bodies. Indeed, their grant was suspended for several years. It's actually recently been reinstated, but only on the basis that it does not work with the Wuhan Institute any longer going forward. When COVID actually emerges, scientists looking at the virus itself made some very interesting observations about how they thought it might have been formed. What were they saying and how did it relate to what had been happening at the lab? On the night of January the 31st, 2020, we'd have known about the virus emerging for about four weeks at that stage, Fauci received an urgent call from a professor called Christian Anderson. And Anderson had been looking at the genome sequence of COVID-19 released a few days earlier. He'd spotted that the virus's unusual makeup was a bit odd and was concerned that it had been created in a laboratory. We know this from Freedom of Information documents. He told Fauci his view was shared by three other leading scientists who all find the genome inconsistent with expectations from evolutionary theory. And in the following weeks, the top scientists would discuss how the virus appeared to have been created in the lab via experiments on humanized mice. They also shared concerns about the low safety standards in the Wuhan Institute in those exchanges. And one, one said there was, quote, a nightmare of circumstantial evidence pointing right at the Wuhan Institute. The Insight team put the findings of their investigation to all of the key players involved. Dr. Shi Zhengli said the Wuhan Institute did not have the virus that causes COVID-19 in its lab, and therefore it could not possibly have leaked. Peter Dajak denied the eco-health-related experiments were dangerous. He said the NIH did not view the experiments as gain-of-function and that laboratory safety rules in China were followed at all times. The NIH said it has never approved any research that would make a coronavirus more dangerous to humans. And Ralph Barrick didn't respond to requests for comment. So... We've heard about the research that was officially documented at the time, but the Insight team think there could have been much more happening at the Wuhan Institute. Tomorrow, in part two. The US investigators have told us about a secret programme of work funded by the Chinese military. They were taking an interest in whether coronaviruses could be used as a bioweapon. And could claims of a cover-up be more than just a conspiracy theory? 
the People's Liberation Army had its own vaccine specialist who was a decorated military scientist. He produced a patent for a COVID vaccine with remarkable speed. US investigators say that they've spoken to witnesses who claim that he fell from the roof of the Wuhan Institute. You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guests, Sunday Times Insight Editor Jonathan Calvert and Deputy Editor George Arbuthnot. The producer today was James Shield. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you tomorrow for part two.